So tonight, I'd like to look a little bit at some of the things that we often uh, heard about in Korea. So when we uh, did a song retreat, and there it's a little longer, it's three months at a time, 10 hours a day. <laughs> we kind of condense it for you and make it more uh, user-friendly. Because I mean, in Korea, you get up at three o'clock in the morning and you go to bed at nine if you're lucky. So uh, it's what they call the six, 10 hours sitting, six hours sleeping. Because once Stephen did a four and 12. And that means four hours sleeping and 12 hours sitting. And really that was tough. And once I was called to translate, because seemingly at two o'clock in the morning, Stephen would yawn, a ghastly, dispiriting yawn, which was very hard for the others. So they told me, can you tell him to stop yawning in a dispiriting way at two o'clock in the morning? And after that, he made sure there was never, ever a 12 and 4 retreat. 10 and 6 was okay. So one of the things that often was mentioned, and is really one of the key uh, part of the training, is this idea that as we practice, we are also cultivating three qualities. And the three qualities are great faith, great courage, and great questioning. And so the first one, great faith, is not any faith. It's not that you have faith and then it gets really muscles, like, you know, I believe this. Actually, no, 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 no. They make a difference between what you could call ordinary faith, which would be more like believing in something, to great faith, which is really what they would call experiential faith. Faith that is really not something you believe in an intellectual or abstract manner that you don't know about yourself, but really the great faith which makes that really gives you the impetus for the practice. So in a way, this great faith is a little bit like a great confidence that we really, in a way, trust ourselves, trust the practice, trust the teaching. And this can only happen when, of course, we started out with what we could call little faith or rational faith or convincing ourselves faith. You know, my friend does it and it seems to be helpful. I read about it in the paper and they say, you know, it's going to cure you from everything, this meditation, you know, you kind of, you know, problem, meditation, you know, that's going to kind of really uh, help you out. So kind of people think, yeah, meditation, I'll do that. I know for myself, that there was a shift when I was first, when I was young, I was more into political action. 
at a very young age. So I wanted to kind of, you know, make the world a better place for everybody more peaceful. And then the first kind of like beginning of faith for me was reading a text where the Buddha says, before you change others, you might want to change yourself first. And I thought, this is a good point. I can tell myself, you know, stop being egoist, stop being jealous. It has no effect whatsoever. How can I say somebody, don't be egoist, don't be jealous? If I'm me, I cannot do it. So I thought, yes, he has a point. Maybe I have to do it myself first and then see if I can help others. So to me, that was in a way the start of the faith, the kind of the movement. And then I, uh, by a strange happenstance, I ended up in Korea. And then in Korea, I arrived interested in meditation. And then there was this woman. And we're kind of cutting vegetables together and it was a great ceremony. And we kind of more or less understood each other in English and she said, oh, are you married? I said, no. Are you a student? Do you work? Do you have children? Do you have a job? I said, no, 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 no. She said, wow, great. You should become a nun. If I was you, I would become a nun. Such an opportunity. Now I am too old. She was 55. Now it's too late. But you, why not do it? And I thought, hmm, that's an idea. Why not? I thought, well, maybe I could learn meditation. Maybe I could learn calligraphy. Maybe I could learn Tai Chi. So again, I gave myself three reasons, you know, let's try this thing. Why not? So I did it. I became a nun. I never learned calligraphy. I never learned Tai Chi. But I learned meditation. But it was still, you could say, little faith. It was just kind of, you know, convincing myself, why not do this? You have nothing better to do. Why not do this? She had a point. But then I did the retreats. So I did uh, one retreat of three months. And then I started another retreat of three months. And then I really saw something. Suddenly it was like, oh, yes, this makes a difference. The first difference it made was in bringing clarity. The fact that suddenly I was sitting in meditation asking, what is this, what is this? And suddenly I became so aware of my thought. And my thought were all about me, I exist, look at me, aren't I great, don't forget me. Or it was about me. And up to that moment, I thought I was the most compassionate person in the world, thinking only of others before myself. And then I thought, uh-uh, there is a mismatch between my perception and what is really going on. So if while you were sitting in meditation, you might have had some thought, it's information. 
good information. What do I think? How do I think it? And so to me, this is in a way one of the key of the meditation. It makes us clear, but in a kind way. I did not think I'm terrible, I'm the worst person in the world, I will never manage or anything. I just thought, ah, that's a situation. What can I do about this situation? Because in a way, what is the practice about? To diminish the percentage. Because when I started out, I would say it was 95%, me, me, me. And then to see, ah, maybe the practice will help me to bring it back to 50-50. 50 myself, 50 others, so that there is more of a balance. And that's what I saw, because there was another moment, which again was a seed of the great faith when suddenly I acted for the sake of someone else and thinking of them first. Because often we think of others, but for ourselves. Oh, I'll do something nice for them. Yes, yes, yes. But because then it makes me feel good. But there, genuinely, I thought of them first, beyond any view or any other thing. I just thought of them. And for their own sake, I acted in a compassionate way. And then I thought, hmm, I have not done this before. Really genuinely thinking of someone else for their own sake. To me, this is one of the key of the practice. When we move from being in a way the center of all the universe to realize each of us is the center of our universe. And can we open to the other center of their universe from their point of view, from where they are at, and not from ours only? And from these two experiences, and in a way, arose great faith. Oh, this works. I can do it. And also, I think, to experience ourselves differently. I think part of the practice of being on a retreat is that we have a really a special time. This is, in a way, why we have this special condition. We are in silence. We have the schedule. We have the instruction, the talks, the groups, etc. And this is in order so that we can really have the time to practice. And through that dedicated time, time to time, we can experience ourselves differently. It doesn't mean that forever after we will be different all the time. Not at all. And we'll talk more about this another time. But it gives us a glimpse of how we can experience ourselves. And through that, it gives us a glimpse of our potentiality. And to me, this is really part of this great faith, is to start to have this inner confidence in our capacity, in our quality. Like here, 
we do the three bows to the Buddha, to the Bodhisattva of compassion. And we see them as representation, as possibility within us. That we can become like the Buddha. We can develop the wisdom like a Buddha. Because just like ourselves is a human being. And just like ourselves is practiced. Just like ourselves, he had obstacles. And just like ourselves, he worked with these obstacles and developed himself to have more wisdom, to have more compassion. And in a way, the body of our compassion, showing us our possibility. Kind of the, the name of the Bodhisattva is in a way the whole hearing, the one who hears the cry of the world and who responds with compassion. So in a way, when we bow, we also hope that for us, that we can experience it, that we can manifest it. So in a way, the great faith is in a way developed over time, that we have our own experience. And we go, oh yeah, I can too, this work. And so in a way, I would say, just to do this retreat, just to sit, just to do the walking, this is already great faith, just experiencing great faith, which will give really the ground of our practice. And then the next thing is great courage. And so here we have to be careful because often we think of courage as some kind of heroism. I'm going to save, that's what one of bit of my myth when I was a young person. I am going to save the world. So this kind of heroic complex. I want to be a hero, a heroine. So we think of something really big. And for us, great courage must be that. I mean, in Korea, the great courage in terms of the practice was to do a non-sleep week or a non-sleep practice. So you would not s lie down and you would just sit all the time. Basically, you sat on the cushion. I mean. but and so like there was this temple in Korea where you had about 150 monks. And so you had 100 who did the 6 and 10. Then you had 20 who did the 4 and 12. And then you had about five who did the non-sleep. <laughs> because, I mean, what's the point? And who wants to do that? So, of course, that's great courage. But what's the point, I would say? I think it's kind of really you, you become like a truly professional. But in a way, what is great courage for us? I think you are demonstrating great courage here already. Just sitting on the cushion, doing the walking, sharing the room, being on this retreat. And in a way, to me, great courage is in a way, has two aspects. One aspect is going beyond our limits. 
because we have a tendency to fix ourselves. Oh, I cannot do this. Oh, I'm not sure. Oh, oh let's daydream a little more. Mm, it's so tasty, this little daydream. Oh. And to me, it's a little bit like great courage is to go beyond our habits. The habit that fixes us, that it be the habit, the mental habit, that it be the physical habit, that it be the emotional habit. In a way, we kind of, there is a courage to go beyond it. So of course you already show that courage in doing the sitting, the walking. That's already showing that courage. And so we're already, in a way, going a little bit beyond our comfort zone. Often I think, but why are we doing this? Because <laughs> it's not always fun. <laughs> and it can be a little painful. I mean, I remember when I was in Korea, I would get up in the morning, okay, okay, let's do this, you know, I would be fine. At the end of the 10 hours, the tenth sitting, I was like, ah, this is painful. You know, and sometimes I had enough energy to see the impermanence of it, the emptiness of it, and other time it was like, oh, this is, oh, another five minutes. And then, whoo. Finally, we can lie down. I mean, all of us experience this sometime. So yes, we already, through doing this retreat, we're doing a little of that, that great courage to go a little bit beyond our comfort zone. Then there is a great courage with the thought. And this is so interesting. Thought. As I said before, what are they? I mean, they're just a little connectivity, electricity in the brain. They're like, poof, poof. At one level, they're really nothing. And at another level, they can occupy us. They can really kind of, you know, weigh us down. And so, to me, the great courage is not to fight with the thought. But the great courage is, hmm, do I need to think this another time? You know, like planning. You plan once, twice, ten times, fifty times. Maybe after the fifth time you could say, possibly not now. Maybe the great courage not to go a sixth time. And instead, back to the breath, the sound, the question. To me, this is great courage. This is what I think meditation is about. Meditation is about making the choice to come back. And this is interesting. Sometimes we make the choice to come back. Sometimes we make the choice without making the choice, because as soon as we see it, we back. And then nothing to do, just to be attentive. Oh, and you're back. And then sometimes it's like the thought is there. Mm. You want to continue, don't you? 
I mean, it's fun, or it's not fun, but it's really, you know, important, you know, to continue. And that's where the great courage comes in. Do I want to continue? Do I need to continue? Can I have the great courage without negativity? Just in a way standing firm. Okay, I'm coming back. I kind of make the stand of coming back. And I think with something it's very easy. You can come back very easily. And with some other thing is like kind of like ex take your take trying to take yourself out of this I don't know how they call it in English, but moving sand. You know, there is some kind of sucking sand. You are in them and it's like And I used to have this with uh, daydreaming. I, you, I mean, I mean, ten hours a day, you had lots of opportunity to daydream, and you know, like, Duh. I mean, daydreaming is fantastic. Kind of, uh, you know, you are, you make a film where you are the actor, the producer, the screenwriter. You even sell the peanuts. You do everything. <laughs> so it's extremely enjoyable. And you can tinker with it to make it even more nice. Mm, yes, yes, yes. And then you're really the hero or heroine of the thing. And this is so seductive. And I did this for a long time in practice. So when you think people who sit 10 hours a day, they must be amazing. They're not Olympians. You know, they might do 10 hours a day of daydreaming, actually, you know, or 10 hours a day of sleeping. And actually, it really stopped when one day, suddenly, really great courage appeared. And I decided, this is it. This sitting, I am not going to follow it. And so for an, a, a whole sit, I was sitting there, mm, nope, back, mm, nope. But what was interesting was the great courage it required to really stand firm in a friendly way and not to whoops. And I did this for the whole time. And after that, it was gone forever. That now I cannot do it. I'm like, hmm? Nothing, there is nothing. And it was such a habit for so long. And what it showed me is that actually the great faith and the great courage coming together can disempower the habit. Because the habit seems to have so much power. I am doing this all the time. I cannot help myself. That's the way it is. And in a way, great faith and great courage said, hmm, maybe you could do something different. Maybe there is enough faith, there is enough energy that you could try in a skillful way to do something different. But also we could see so great courage in going beyond our limits, of course. But also great courage to accept our limits. To me, this is both as place when we practice. 
Because when we practice, this is, again, often we have this idea of this awakening, this mega something. We'll talk more about it later. And so because of that, it needs to be really grandiose and heroic and everything. And yes, sometimes we can go beyond our limits. And it's useful, it's important. But sometimes we need to accept our limits. That I think is also as important to have the great courage to accept. Maybe I cannot do this now, which is a little bit what's happening with Stephen at the moment. At the moment, he really does not have the energy to just do this. Like, he's done it like for the last 30 years. <laughs> so you would think, well, why not now? He just does not have the energy. Or for Sophie, who kind of, when she was in Burma, suffered so much and really kind of, you know, practiced so hard, or less, although she was ill and everything. But here, to have the courage to say, no. I can't do it today. I'm really unwell. I cannot do it. So in a way, I think there is these two kinds of courage. Courage to go beyond the limits and courage to accept our limits. That, I think, is very important. And then there is a third one. And the third one, in a way, is a theme of this retreat, great questioning. And tomorrow I'll talk more about the question in detail. But here I want to look at what do they mean by great questioning. Here they really mean to bring a certain level of alertness, of energy to our practice really a certain level of exploration. Because, in a way, what we're trying to do with the practice is the fact that we have a tendency to grasp. We have a tendency to fix. We really have such a tendency to, it's always like this. I will never change or they will never change. I am always thinking this. I'm always feeling this. And here the idea is to really question. And to me that's why I think the, the practice can be very helpful in terms of looking at how do I not question myself. And here we have to be very careful when we talk about great questioning. We are not talking about negative doubt. Because this is very interesting. If you look in the text, doubt is one of the obstacles. If you look in the ancient text, in the Pali text at the time of the Buddha, not the text, but what he taught, one of those obstacles is doubt. And here doubt is meaning as vacillation, as kind of being unsure, 
as kind of not vacillating between this and that, so kind of what you could call a negative doubt, which makes we don't have any great faith, we don't have any great courage. So we have to see that when in uh, the psalm they talk about great questioning, great doubt, great perplexity, it's based on the great faith and the great courage. So for this reason, it's very different from the doubt as an obstacle. So here it's really kind of a questioning which is not kind of trying to, a questioning which then makes you question everything and then there is no ground. But a great questioning which actually helps us to explore. And I think one of the things that can help us to explore is our identity. Because it's kind of interesting, identity. Because of course, in Buddhism, in meditation, you hear a lot about emptiness. We might talk more about this. You hear a lot about no self or not self. And so you might have the impression that there is nobody or that there should be nobody. That maybe at the end of the retreat, you will become just little puff of smoke on the cushion going back, like little, kind of the puff of the magician. But actually that's not the idea. The idea of the practice, of this great questioning, is actually to look at what are the conditions that forms me? And how do I block, how do I fix my identity? And I think that's where the great faith can be very helpful. Great faith in our potential. Great faith in working with the conditions. Great courage in doing something. And great questioning leading us to explore. In a way, what am I constituted of? Who do I think I am? This is an interesting one. Who do I think I am? And you could say, at any given moment, you can be so many different things. I mean, here, the shape I have here is that I am the teacher. But if then I decided, hmm, I am the teacher, that's my identity. So I'm going to teach all the time everybody. You know, the chemist, the bus conductor, my niece, whoever I encounter, I teach you, my dear, you will be safe. But fortunately, I don't do this. Because I am the teacher, but here, because it's a son retreat, I know enough about son that I can teach about it. So I am the teacher here. But as soon as I go out of the door, I am a passerby. I'm going home. I take care of my mother. And so I am her daughter, which now has become a little bit her mother, actually. And what is interesting for me, taking care of my mother, who has a kind of some kind of uh, vascular memory problem, so that 
she really lives in the moment. And I can tell you it's not fun to live in the moment. We have to be careful when we say, you know, be in the moment. Because she really has no memory. You go walking with her, you come back. Oh, we walked. Did we? And then she feels bad. So that's one thing we try to do, not to remind her that she does not have a memory. Because otherwise she feels so bad that she could not remember something she did 10 minutes ago. And so, in a way, I can take good care of her because of my practice, because of what I have developed over time. And then I kind of, uh, my sister who can help me a little bit nowadays, she kind of observed me and said, but you do like creative prevention. I said, yeah, because I am aware of her, for her, and I see what are the conditions that are going to be helpful? What are the conditions that are going to make her really be worse? So I kind of prevent creatively, and it makes things easier. But for that, I need to be aware of her for herself, not for myself. So in a way, here I have another role. In another time, another. So in a way, my identity shifts. But within that different shifting of identity, they can also be values. This, I think, is very important. The fact that we talk of emptiness, not self, doesn't mean there is no value. And so each of us, I would presume, why do we come here? I presume not to become Olympian in meditation, possibly, but possibly not. Me, I never, I was in the sun school where awakening is a big thing there. But for me, it was never a big thing. I thought, well, if I become awakened, why not? Nothing against it. Could come in handy. <laughs> but personally, what I'm really looking for is to develop wisdom and compassion so that I can help myself and through that be of benefit to others for themselves. And then it's a never-ending journey because you don't get the perfect wisdom, the perfect compassion. You just develop the muscle of that. And to me, in a way, that's why we practice because we have different identities, we have different conditions, there are different things contributing to ourselves. Our history, our gender, our work, what we studied, our experiences, so many different things. So in a way, the great questioning is actually the exploring of all these conditions, but without saying that one that's me. Because that's often what we do. My job, that's me. My gender, that's me. My culture, that's me. That was so fascinating in Korea to realize how French I was. I had not thought about it. But I realized that physically, 
we are shaped by our culture. And so when I was in Korea, time to time people would tell me, that's not the way you wring clothes. Because I used to do this. And they said, uh-uh, that's not the way. The right way is like this. So you would take it and do something Korean with it. And I could not do this. <laughs> you know? Or a little girl, I, I kind of washing my clothes on the stone with some soap. And she, I mean, she's five years old. And she tells me, that's not the way to do it. She pushed me. I said, look, you do this. And then you do that. And then you do that. I'm like, and I realized. We think the way I do things, this is the right way to do things. It's just a French way. Then you have the Korean way and many other ways. So in a way, through this practice of great questioning, really exploring the different condition of our identity, and then can we flow through them? This to me is one essential component of the practice. Like when we do the ceremony, we offer some water. Because water in Korean Buddhism is a symbol of awakening. And this is a symbol of awakening because it's adaptable, because it's flexible, because it flows. And what is interesting with water, it doesn't flow up, it flows down. So in a way, when we have this great questioning, through that great questioning, we can explore hmm, this thought. Do I need to think this right now? Could I think something else? I am feeling this right now. Hmm? How long will it last? I have this kind of sensation. How long is it going to last? Do I wait for it to pass? Do I take a painkiller? Do I change posture? So really trying to, to me, this great questioning in a way can transform in what I would call creative engagement so that we creatively engage with the conditions that we explore through the great questioning. Because often we see the condition, but then it's very hard not to stick. This is me. And so in a way the great questioning is really, I would say, building the muscle to explore in a grounded, clear way, so that the exploration is not making us dizzy. Because often that's what happens. If we question, sometimes we just get, oh, there is too many possibility and too many aspects. And here the great questioning of this exploration of our identity, for example, it's grounded in great faith, in this kind of what we Doing in meditation is really bringing this, I would say, this experiential, organic awareness of ourselves. Awareness of ourselves as connected within the world. So that in a way, when we explore our identity, 
we're also exploring our identity within the world. Because our identity is totally dependent on what makes us survive. And so then we can continue the exploration of what feeds me, what clothes me, what protects me, what cures me. And then all of this, I don't produce myself. So in a way, with the gray questioning, even though it can start with the identity, multiple, multi-perspectival identity of this organism, then it moves to also the exploration of my connection, my dependence, my interdependence with everything that is around me. So in a way, this is what we can kind of looking forward for the rest of the retreat, I hope. So that's what I wanted to say. Are there any questions or comments? Yes. Yeah, that's, what, that's why I was pointing out it has to be uh, a friendly, it has to be a friendly, uh, f I would say a firm stand. That's why I equate it with great courage. It's actually taking a firm stand. But before you can take a firm stand, you need to know, back to the great questioning, you need to know what's going on. And so for me, it took a long time because first, I had to see, oh, I am daydreaming. I was just so caught up in it, I did not realize I was daydreaming. So th and that first happened when I used to daydream when I was in Korea, of going to practice in a hermitage, practicing very hard, awakening for the sake of everybody. Then I realized I was daydreaming about meditating, but not meditating. And then I started to realize there was a special theme to my daydreaming. So then I could start to recognize more. Oh, I am daydreaming. And then I started, and that's where th the great courage came in, I started to notice, and that's to me something really interesting with the great questioning, the exploration, is to notice that actually the thought that takes us have a taste, that they generally, when they start, there is something. And what I noticed with the daydreaming is that there would be this, mm, like this pleasant kind of, mm. and suddenly I saw that you had that pleasantness, 
And generally there is a few words like if I had, if I was. So by seeing that, I was able to stay closer to the beginning than being lost in the story itself. And so what I did in that retreat, in that sitting, was actually really knowing that taste of pleasantness and saying, I have the choice. Basically, I was, I have the choice. So for me, it was not negation, because negating is actually before, as you say, the thing even starts, you say, no, no. And then if you do that, then it comes back even more, because you don't know it. And so that's why, to me, with the great questioning, we can really know it. So we can really know the thought. Same with rumination. Rumination is very interesting. How does it happen, rumination? One moment, you right here. The breath, the question, the sound. Next moment, suddenly you think of something bad that happened to you. And then, next moment, you're in the future plotting revenge. Very compassionate activity on the cushion. <laughs> and so in a way, before you can do anything about rumination, you have to know what goes on. So you have to kind of see, oh, that's what I do. Is this useful? So it's kind of, to me, you, you make the choice from clarity, not from aversion. Because if you make the choice from aversion, then generally it makes it bigger. But if you make the choice from clarity, then it's kind of like it's dissolving the power. Yes? So I was, uh, we'll talk more about this later, but just to see that the way it works, in the, in the same way, I would say that with the questioning, you have the, when you practice, you have the choice with different tradition, either to cultivate awareness directly or indirectly, loving kindness directly or indirectly, compassion directly or indirectly. So in Korea, in terms of the son practice, you don't practice the loving kindness in that way in the meditation. But the way they do it, they put that into ethics. So in a way, you have the three training of ethics, meditation, and wisdom. And actually, the loving kindness and the compassion are partly in the ethics, partly in the wisdom. And so what they have is that they have a text which is called the Bodhisattva Precepts, which is totally based on compassion. So it's an ethics based on compassion. And, and in the temple, you recite this every two weeks. And then you really, in a way, follow them. And I translated the text because I could see that the text had some effect on the behavior of the people in the temple. For example, they have an amazing uh, tradition of forgiveness, which comes because of the text. And so, in a way, the practice of loving kindness and compassion is done through 
ethical behavior, you could say, ethical relationship, and not in the practice itself. But personally, I would say that practicing, that's why in a way gave me great faith, by practicing just a questioning, within six months, I saw I was more compassionate. And so that's why I feel that with the practice, as long as you practice anchoring and looking deeply together, personally, I believe that you can also uh, develop compassion. But of course, the loving kindness meditation, compassion meditation can be very good practice to orient toward that. But in the sound practice, it's a kind of it's done in a different way. Okay, so if there is nothing else, then we'll have some uh, walking meditation and then the final sitting.